Good morning. My name is Rachel. Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in third through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room or to join Kids Commons inside. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles, who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Um, I'm excited to look at this text with you guys this morning, uh, but as always, I want to start off by inviting you into a moment of silent reflection to prepare our hearts and minds to receive what the Lord has for us. So after a few moments of stillness before the Lord, I'll pray for us. Lord, as we uh, sit here this morning, as we feel your presence and your life coursing through our bodies and our spirits, our hearts, uh, we are mindful of the many blessings that you've given us, that you have given us this life, and you have given us so many things, um, including yourself. Most importantly, you have given us yourself. So with that in mind, with that in the forefront of our hearts, we come to you this morning and ask that you give us even more, um, knowing that you are full of abundance and you are full of life and you are a happy and generous giver. It's with that heart and mind and that spirit we pray. Amen. Um, of all the living creatures in our house, and there are several, <laughs> the one that we have taken care of the longest in our lives, Megan and I, is our cat. Uh, her name's Boo. Her actual name is Davy, uh, but I don't remember why we started calling her Boo, but we started calling her Boo a long time ago. She's just been Boo ever since. We got Boo from the Humane Society when she was very little. That's us 14 years ago. Um, she has been with us for the last 14 years ever since, through thick and thin. I think she's survived seven or eight moves to different parts of the country. She has survived four baby boys who are not always the most gentle with her. This is Griffin smushing her when she was small. She's just the best. She's tolerated a lot from us. I know you think your cat's the best, but Boo is really the best. Um, she's basically a dog trapped in a cat's body, so she has that going for her. Uh, she used to be comfortably chubby, I would say. But at age 14, she is kind of just like this sack of bones. She's like so skinny and sad. I don't know. She has four legs. I know it looks like she only has three, but she still has four legs. Um, so she's so skinny and so scrawny that when she hops up on the kitchen table to scavenge for foods, like we go pretty easy on her. 
So the other day, we're done with dinner, and sure enough, Boo hops onto the table. She's hunting leftovers, and the food was gone, so tough luck, Boo. We ate it all. But she did find her second favorite thing on the table, which is a cup of water. So Boo's got her own water bowl, but she much prefers human water. She normally just jams her whole head into the cup and starts lapping away, but this time she just reached in one little paw and very slowly tipped the cup over. And there's water just like sloshed everywhere. It's dripping on the floor. It's a huge mess. I look at the boys. The boys look at me, and we all are like, I'm not cleaning that up. So we glare at Boo because she's responsible. This is a devil cat. And she blinks back at us, all innocent. And Boo, I, I, she's a great cat, but Boo does not clean up messes. She has made that abundantly clear over the years. So there we are, all of us looking around for someone else to do something while water keeps dripping onto the floor. And I bring that up because last week we started our sermon series on this biblical concept of jubilee. Jubilee is the season set aside by God to recalibrate people, to recalibrate society. And we need these recalibrations because inevitably we will drift away from the Lord's intent, from God's peace, from God's wholeness. We will get out of tune with ourselves and the whole world will suffer as a result. We are spilling water all over the place and things are a mess. And who is supposed to clean it up? Like who's responsible to clean up this mess? It's the question that I want us to have in mind as we turn to the text that Rachel just read for us. We're in, the gospel, we're, in the gospel, we're in the book of Acts. It's a continuation of Luke's gospel. The gospel of Luke is really like part one of Luke's story. It's the story of Jesus. And Acts is Luke part two. It's how the followers of Christ, recalibrated by the Holy Spirit, became the church, became this community that was going to carry the good news about Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea all the way to the ends of the earth. And honestly, the church is off to a pretty incredible start. Peter, James, they're preaching the word throughout Jerusalem. Thousands of people are putting their faith in Jesus. In Acts 2, we see the church is thriving. It's meeting together. They're eating together. They sell their possessions. They share their money with all those in need. They enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. The church just enjoyed the goodwill of all the people, which sounds really nice. And the fellowship was growing. The Lord added to their number every single day. In Acts 4, still thriving. The believers were united in heart and mind. They didn't think of what they owned as their own. They shared everything they had with everyone else. They would bring their money to the apostles and trust that the apostles would give it out to whoever needed it the most. This is this beautiful picture of the church as God intended it to be, this harmonious fellowship. I wonder how did it feel? How did it feel to be part of this community? Like Just imagine for a second that you're part of that community. How does that feel? If it's a marriage, maybe it's like the honeymoon phase, right? Everything's clicking on all cylinders. But then we get to Acts chapter 6, and the honeymoon seems to be over. Verse 1, the believers are rapidly multiplying, and there were rumblings of discontent among them. The Greek-speaking believers are complaining about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows are being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So here's the general consensus on what's happening. The church is growing rapidly. It's starting to become more diverse because Jerusalem is this melting pot of ancient culture. Jews from all over the region are traveling to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. That's the center of the Jewish world. So picture with me this older Jewish couple. They'd lived their whole lives in another part of the giant Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was a vast empire. So let's say they're living in Turkey, or they're living in Italy, they're living in northern Africa, they're living somewhere outside of Jerusalem and Judea. As they get older, they decide they're going to move back to Jerusalem. 
hoping that when they die, they'll be able to be buried in the same ground as their ancestors were. So they're in Jerusalem. They've immigrated there. They hear about this Messiah. They hear about Jesus, and they decide they're going to believe in that message. So they are two of the thousands of people who have joined the Christian church. And then the husband passes away, leaving his wife behind in this strange land. Like the others, she's Jewish, and like the others, she believes in Jesus. They have that in common, but unlike the others, she doesn't speak Hebrew. She speaks Greek. She's from a different part of the world. She has a different cultural identity. She observes different customs. She eats different foods. She sings different songs. And these differences, it turns out, really mattered a lot. Because when food got passed out to all the vulnerable widows, this Greek-speaking widow didn't get what the Hebrew-speaking widows got. And this injustice, it says, happened daily. Like every single day, she wasn't getting what the others were getting. Now, I don't think those in charge are deliberately neglecting the Greek-speaking widows. The church is growing. It's expanding like crazy. Some people are going to be overlooked. It's bound to happen. But I also don't think it's a coincidence that it's the Greek-speaking widows who in this moment are overlooked, that they're the ones slipping through the cracks. Because we all tend to look out for, to feel responsible for, people like us. For example, when I see anyone wearing a Kansas City Royals jersey, in Massachusetts, I stop and I introduce myself to them as a fellow fan, both from Missouri. As minorities in Red Sox Nation, Royals fans have got to stick together. Am I right? We tend to look out for our own. In Acts 4, remember, donated money was entrusted to the 12 apostles. They were responsible for giving out the resources according to people's needs. These 12 apostles also happened to be Hebrew-speaking men who also grew up in small fishing towns, usually near Galilee. It is therefore not surprising at all that their people, the Hebrew-speaking widows, got the food they needed. And it's also not surprising at all that these church leaders overlooked the Greek widows among them. If you're Hebrew-speaking, you have an advantage. And if you're Greek-speaking, you are at a disadvantage. So let me ask you again. What does it feel like to be part of this church? What does it feel like if you are one of the Greek-speaking members of this church and you feel overlooked and you've been treated differently? How does it feel when you're treated unfairly? And on top of that, the people in charge don't even notice that it's happening. Well, it doesn't feel good. So there's grumbling. And it's not just the widows grumbling. The whole Greek-speaking sub-community in this Christian church, they're complaining about this. You know, so often those in power, when they hear a complaint like this, they get defensive right away. They feel attacked. They feel threatened. They dismiss or deny that the problem exists. Maybe they deflect blame, sometimes even blaming the victims for not taking care of their own problems. And often, in religious circles particularly, defensive leaders minimize mundane considerations like food because there are more important spiritual matters to attend to. I mean, look at how many people are getting baptized. Look at the growth of the church. All these souls are being saved. We can't waste time on a discontented minority. The kingdom's rolling. So get on the bus or get out of the way. Typical responses to complaints. The apostles in Acts chapter 6 don't respond in any of those fearful ways. They hear grumbling and they really listen. And listening is more than hearing, right? Hearing is just noise hitting your eardrums. 
Listening is hearing, it is hearing, but it's infused with sympathy and with compassion and with grace, with love. And so these apostles received the complaints, the hurts expressed by these Greek Christians. And you know what they did next? They agreed. They agreed with the complaint. You're right, we've messed this up. We've treated you unfairly, and it's not okay. And next, they work quickly to make it right. Verse 2, the 12 call a meeting of all the believers, and they all agree that the church should select seven men to be in charge of food distribution, men who were respected, who were full of the Spirit, who were also wise. You know, reading these verses, I think it's actually tempting to see the 12 as pretty arrogant here, right? The New Living Translation actually doesn't help. It's like they're going to keep all the important stuff, the teaching, to themselves, and they're going to give all the less important stuff, like handing out food to somebody else. It's kind of how it sounds to our ears. But I actually think the apostles here are showing some humility. I think they're showing humility. Up till now, they've been doing everything. Like, they've been doing everything. They've been preaching, they've been teaching, they've been organizing, they've been in charge of the finances, they've been controlling the money, they've been in charge of everything. And I think they realize that as they grow, as this church grows, that they are becoming overwhelmed by the responsibilities that are thrust upon them. Splitting up the work means they can focus on the calling that Jesus specifically gave them, which is preaching the word verbally. So I don't think they're saying that food distribution or that money is less important than that. I think they're recognizing that each person has something unique to offer the church. And the specific call that God put on them was to preach the word. But all the parts of the church body are actually really important. So they agreed to do what leaders so rarely do. They relinquished some control. They gave up their power. The 12 would keep spreading the good news through preaching and teaching, and another group would control the resources. Another group would ensure that those resources were given to all who joined the church, that everyone who came would be cared for. Verse 5, everyone liked the idea. <laughs> Love it. Everyone liked the idea. The vote happens. Seven men are selected. Importantly, as many have observed, all seven of the men selected have Greek names. These names are Greek in the New Testament. Now, this isn't a guarantee that all seven men were part of this minority Greek group, because in that day, everyone actually had three names. <laughs> they had a, a Hebrew name, they had a Greek name, they had a Roman name. You would use your name depending on the context that you were in. But we know for sure that Stephen and Nicholas were Greek because of how the text describes them. And the simple fact that Luke chooses to use their Greek names, I think, makes it a pretty safe bet that all seven men were culturally Greek. It's pretty incredible, to be honest with you. The church faced the possibility that it would split into a church of Hebrew-speaking people and a church of Greek-speaking people. But the twelve the ones with the most influence, the ones with the most power, the ones who are part of the majority in-group, kept their resolve to be one church and not two. And to do that, they gave up some control. They shared their leadership. They ensured that a vulnerable, overlooked subgroup would have representation at the table and resources that they needed. Now, this specific solution isn't prescriptive. Lord knows the solution to every single problem is not to form a committee. <laughs> I know that that's not true. But their response, I think, is pretty instructive for us. Listening carefully, agreeing with humility, and then collaborating with those who have been wronged on a remedy. Listening carefully, agreeing with humility, and collaborating with those who have been wronged on the solution. So let me ask again, how does it feel to be part of that community? How does it feel to be part of a community like that, where leaders are willing to set aside some power I think it feels pretty great. Verse 7, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. 
It seems that their collaborative leadership, their commitment to representation, the responsibility they felt to care for each other was a powerful aspect of their witness. Like this was one of the things the church was known for. In Christ's church, we listen to each other. We admit when we've made mistakes, and we problem-solve together to make things right. And then we set up systems to prevent this kind of mistake from happening again. It's a pretty good thing that we don't experience any divisions between any people groups anymore today. <laughs> right? It's a good... Man, this passage preaches, doesn't it? We're crazy divided. We're divided along state lines. We're divided on economic lines. There are racial lines, urban and rural lines, donkeys against elephants, millennials versus boomers, kids versus adults, Megan versus Kate, average, <laughs> average beer, average light beer versus Kid Rock is one of my favorite ones. And then Texas is just like versus the world, I think, Texas versus the world. There's all kinds of dividing lines that we see. If you go back just 60 years in America, America was institutionally divided. Legal segregation kept some groups of Americans separate from other groups of Americans, separate schools, separate swimming pools, separate bathrooms, separate public transportation. We often talk about the United States of America, but in 1967, Martin Luther King, on the heels of this segregation, gave a speech describing not a united America, but two separate Americas. He said, in one America, in majority white America, we have an overflowing of prosperity. We have opportunity for all. It has ample food, it has material resources, it has education, and in this America, millions of people, quote, experience every day the opportunity of having life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's an America, he said, of hope and optimism. But, King said, tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. It has a daily ugliness that turns hope into despair. And in this America, Millions of work-starved people walk the streets in search of jobs that don't exist. Black Americans and Puerto Rican Americans and Mexican Americans and Native Americans and Appalachian whites, people poor by the millions, quote, living on islands of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of prosperity. So just like the early church, not everyone has the same experience. Not everyone has the same opportunity. In their book, The Economics of Jubilee, Adam Gustine and Jose Humphreys argue that although these two Americas are separate, they're actually really intertwined with each other. They're separate, but they're also intertwined. They say, quote, the material prosperity of the first America was established and is maintained on the systemic and interpersonal degradation of those who live in the other America. And like it was in the early church, this economic injustice often goes unseen or is conveniently overlooked, as it was by the Hebrew-speaking Jews, as it is by residents of the first America. And King said that in all of this, the greatest tragedy was the kids. The greatest tragedy was the kids growing up in the second America, who live every day of their lives with a cloud of inferiority over their heads. To use different terms, I think they're talking about privilege. People in the first America enjoy privileges. Now, privilege is a buzzword. It's caught in the culture wars right now. It's one of those topics we're not sure how to talk about. So we don't. We avoid it. Sometimes we deny that privilege exists. We instead hold to the notion that everyone has the same opportunity, and whether we sink or swim is totally dependent upon our own individual efforts and abilities. Sometimes we avoid talking about privilege because it makes us feel really uncomfortable. It's too controversial, so we'd rather not go there. 
Or finally, we might feel so overwhelmed by the enormity of this problem and this scale that we don't even know where to start and we're paralyzed, immobilized, helpless, and we don't talk about it. I don't want to deny, I don't want to avoid, but I don't want to give up. The apostles didn't deny or avoid or give up. They listened, they agreed, they addressed. So maybe in a hope that we can take the temperature down a little bit, privilege can be a trigger word, but what does it actually mean? Like, what are we talking about here? Well, I think it basically means having an advantage that other people don't have. It can be having resources, like having money that others don't. It can be having access to opportunity that others don't. It can be enjoying the freedom to move about freely from one location to another that others don't. It can be having the ability or influence, the ability to influence our own futures. It can be the ability to control our own narratives and what people think about us. If you have privilege, it means you have more power, more control than others have. And every single society has forms of privilege and always has. In his book, Subversive Witness, Dominique Gilliard outlines the forms of privilege that he sees in the United States. He says that the United States has these forms of privilege, race and gender, citizenship, class or wealth or status, education, sexual orientation, and able-bodiedness. These are all forms of privilege. And if you're on the right side of these social scales, then you have some advantages in this world. He also points out, interestingly, that these privileges are stackable. You can have more than one type of privilege stacked upon another. Or you can have some and like, not have other ones. So let's break that down a little bit. If you're in ancient Rome, the perfect stack is male, Roman, citizen, property owner, upper class. To hit the jackpot in modern America, by contrast, you're white, you're wealthy, you're heterosexual, you're male. You have a U.S. citizenship, you have a college degree, and you have a functioning body. I would also add that I think being conventionally attractive has been shown to give you a significant advantage compared to your peers. Now, stacking several privileges on top of each other does not make you automatically awesome. It does not make you automatically successful or automatically happy, but it does mean you have fewer barriers, that the doors are generally more open for you, not shut in your face. Stacking also happens in the other direction. In America, if you are a person of color, if you are an immigrant, if you have little wealth or little education, if you are a woman, if you are a member of the LGBTQ community, if you have a health condition or an impairment, then you have a tough road in front of you. And I don't want to believe it. But if I'm being real, for so many people, the thought of walking into the church, any church in America, with any number of these identities might be more than enough to keep that person from walking into a church anywhere in America for fear of how people will respond to them or for fear out of whether they'll fit in. This is and always has been the world that we live in. This is the out-of-tune song that the world sings. As Christians, we are called to see this situation through the lens of the gospel, through the pages of Scripture, through the example of Christ. This is why I called it a recalibration last week. That's what we're talking about, recalibrating ourselves. Jesus pronounced the year of the Lord's favor, which means sight and release and freedom. And as our Lord invites us, he's inviting us into this different way, the way of Jesus, a different song, a jubilee song. Our Lord invites us into this song. The Lord 
calls us into this song. The Lord maybe even orders us into this song to follow his lead, and it will make us all uncomfortable. We all have some privileges. Some of us have a lot of these privileges. I check a lot of those boxes. And whether or not we call them privileges or resources or advantages or blessings or talents, the point is not to feel guilty for how God made you or for what you have or to apologize for having it. God created each of us, and the way God created each of us is good, and the things that we have are good. But is what I have mine? Is what I have mine to be enjoyed by me? and to be explored by me, and to be preserved by me, and passed on to my kids by me? Or is there a different song? Jesus makes it pretty clear that if I keep what I have for myself, if my gain comes at the expense and exploitation of others, then my blessings are actually my prison, and I'm enslaved to my own wealth. Jesus, who had several privileges, by the way, showed by example how to use privilege to free others. And in freeing others, Jesus says, we free ourselves. Luke 12, 48, when someone has been given much, they will be, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. It will make us all uncomfortable. So we listen, and we agree, and we address when Boo the cat spilled the water on my table, even though I didn't create that problem, it was my cat, and it was my house, and my kids were watching me, and I didn't create the problem, but I was in a position to clean it up. So I did. And it got me thinking. I see messes in this world all over the place, and so often I don't actually consider them to be my responsibility because they're not actually my problem. I didn't create them. That doesn't actually impact me. I don't know any of those people. Pretty easy to keep walking, to ignore the suffering, to deny that it's happening, to blame those who are suffering for making poor choices and hope that someone else will fix the problem. But God reminds me that I have all these blessings, that I have all these resources, and God reminds me to have the mind of Christ, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up. Whether or not I created the problem, I'm definitely in a position to do something about most of the problems. The situation in Acts 6 shows us that while we all experience the groaning common to creation, we all experience a groaning that's common to creation, some people, through no fault of their own, experience more suffering. And some people, through no merit of their own, experience more privilege. How we choose to use what we have bears witness to our priorities and our values. As Christians, we have the opportunity to use what we have so that others know God. So there's no God's generosity and God's love and God's care for them. We're not only responsible for ourselves. We're not only responsible for our kids or for people like us. We're responsible to care for, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, the hungry and the foreigners and the sick and the imprisoned. And in a beautiful way, when we care for others, we're caring for Jesus. And he's caring for us. I think we all have at least some privileges, some resources, some blessings from the Lord. So I encourage you, challenge you, this week to spend some time thinking about what God has entrusted to you. 
Like we do every week, consider your time, your talents, your treasure. Consider the forms of privilege that I mentioned earlier. And oh, by the way, the form of privilege that you think about the least is probably the privilege that you have the most. Race, gender, citizenship, class, status, wealth, your education, sexual orientation, and able-bodiedness. These are forms of privilege. And then remember the apostles. These are Jewish-speaking men, educated at the feet of the rabbi Jesus. They are leaders in the early church. When they realized that a group of vulnerable people in the church was falling through the cracks, they listened, they agreed, and they shared power with those who were hurting. There are so many things we could do. There are so many things we could do, church. And if you've been around with us for any length of time, you know that we stress the reality of our own limitations. Right? We talk all the time about how we can't do everything. We can't help everyone. And sometimes we're so depleted that we really can't help anyone else. And that's okay. So this is not about making us feel guilty. This is not about coercing us into action. This is not about earning salvation or earning God's favor or earning God's love because God loves us, period, full stop. And God's grace is for us, period, full stop. And God's not out to take away all you have by force. God is asking, inviting, asking us to see the abundance that we have to listen to the suffering that we'd rather ignore and ask the Lord what actions we might take to bear responsibility to clean it up. And if it comes from the Lord, the Lord will provide. So I think privilege is something that we must each wrestle with individually, and it's also something I think we consider together as a church community. What resources do we have? What, what are the ways in which Haverhill Commons Church is rich? Are there any folks who are slipping through the cracks with us? So here's just one idea. <clears throat> um, what are we rich in? <laughs> I think we have a pretty good worship service. I think we have a lot of talented musicians. We have a lot of really friendly people. We have a lot of connecting people, relational people that aren't overly weird. So to me, <laughs> what happens here is a resource that we have. How can we use it? So months ago, Yuna and I, Yuna's back there, we're talking um, about the folks who live where she works. She is the executive director at Benchmark Senior Living. And folks that live in benchmark senior living facilities are so easily ignored or missed. They slip through the cracks. It's easy to miss them and to just keep on walking. Our society values youth. They are, for the most part, elderly in their 80s and 90s. Our society values ability. They are no longer able-bodied. Many of them struggle to remember their family members, their own names, even. They cannot leave their buildings without assistance, so they cannot go to church. So what if we brought church to them? What if we sang songs and read scripture together? What if we shared communion at the Lord's table together? It seems like this is something that we could do. So I've been working with folks at Benchmark. I've been working with folks at our sister church, Anchor Bay in Beverly, on bringing a worship service to the people living in memory care in Danvers at the atrium. It's just one idea. I personally think it sounds pretty awesome to serve folks at Benchmark. So if you're interested in that or you feel challenged by that personally, you're like, hey, I think I might be able to help with that, please talk to me um, after the service. We'll send out things, I'm sure, over the next weeks and months. Maybe the Spirit is inviting us to do something completely different than that, to leverage some of our other privileges in ways we haven't even thought of yet. 
open to all possibilities. In closing, I just want to say I know this is hard. Like, I know it's hard. The words are unsettling, I think, for some of us. They're hard and unsettling for me, too. And yet, I invite us all to sit at the feet of Christ, to consider how God may be speaking to us through these words and through this whole sermon series about bringing Jubilee to this world, bringing God's freedom to people and places around us. Because it's not only hard, and it's not only unsettling, it's also actually really exciting. It's really exciting to ask God to give us a willingness to share what we've been given. And it's really exciting to think that in doing so, we are sharing Jesus in deeper and deeper ways with those around us. Amen?